Detroit Pistons select Scott Pollard from the University of Kansas. Pollard. Yes! Scott Pollard! Great defense by Pollard. What's up, everybody? Not My House Podcast in the house with your host, Eric, and the co-host, Zach. Zach, what's going on, my friend? Just excited for our guest today. This was uh, somebody who I used to love watching back in the 2000s, so I'm just really excited for this one. Yeah, absolutely. I got to meet this uh, this guest at a uh, King preseason game many moons ago uh, when the Kings played, uh, I believe it was the Sonics, when Ewing was still on the Sonics. So he's a former Kansas Jayhawk and went to play 11 seasons in the NBA, winning an NBA title with the uh, Boston Celtics. Mr. Scott Pollard. Scott, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yes, thanks for being on with us. We appreciate it. Uh, we always like to get to know our guests before we hop into basketball. So where did you grow up as a kid and what was your childhood like? Uh, I grew up, I was born in Utah. Uh, my whole family is Mormon. I'm related to most of the state of Utah. And uh, I was raised in San Diego. I graduated from high school in San Diego. Uh, I did during my senior year. Uh, well, during my sophomore year, my dad died. Uh, and so my mom and I kind of ran out of money really quickly during my sophomore year of high school. And then during my junior year of high school, my mom went and lived with a family member up in Washington. And I kind of bummed around with friends. I mean, some people were like, you were homeless. And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess kind of my junior year of high school, I just kind of slept on couches. Whoever would take me in. Um, and then my senior year, my mom made me move up to her, to live with her uh, in the state of Washington and southeast of Washington. And then uh, after basketball ended, we, we made a run at the state title at Kamayakin High School. And uh, we got knocked out of the, the finals. Uh, in, I think we took fourth place at state. And at that point, I was 18 years old. And I said goodbye, mom. And I packed up my crappy Cadillac and I drove back to San Diego played volleyball with my friends, graduated uh, high school with my friends down in San Diego. Once again, kind of lived alone. I I think I scraped up some money and got a job uh, and and was able to live in an apartment for a little while. Uh, And then when I left for Kansas, that was it. I I really never went back to San Diego to live. Wow. That's like a... It's like a culture shock. I, I moved from New Jersey to, to Reno, Nevada, which was crazy. But I got a, a got a picture going from Utah to San Diego. It was definitely one of those culture shocks in terms of uh, lifestyles and stuff. I was really good at soccer in Utah. And then I got to San Diego. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. I know where you're going with that one. <laughs> so... So, um, when did you get like? So, when did you get into sports? Like, were you super young, like mostly all of us were? And and what was the sport that you kind of gravitated towards when you first started playing sports? Uh, well, I'm the youngest of six kids. My dad is in the state of Utah Hall of Fame. Uh, so, basketball has always been a part of our life. I'm from a family of giants. My dad is six nine. My mom's six two. Next, my oldest brother is six nine. He's the shortest one. Uh, my next brother seven three. My sister wow. six two. Then seven foot, seven foot, and I'm six eleven. Wow. So I was born with a bat on my hands. I was two feet tall when I was born. I mean, it was just that, that was kind of what I was going to do. Uh, but at the same time, my dad never let us play year round. 
So I played soccer, I played basketball, I tried baseball one year in third grade, too big of a strike zone. I couldn't swing that bat. Right, <laughs> but, right, uh, right. No, but, Randy, uh, no Randy Johnson pitching for you. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, and so then I got to uh, San Diego, and as I mentioned, uh, soccer quickly not, became not my sport. Yeah. Uh, and beach volleyball became a reality because there was beaches there. Oh, yeah. So I was playing volleyball, and uh, then I had, there was six man indoor in high school. And so uh, I don't know if this has changed, but at the time I was the first player to be named player of the year in basketball in, in San Diego, as well as uh, volleyball. Volleyball. Nice. Yeah. And I mean, like me growing up in the beaches in New Jersey, it's like, there's nothing like playing volleyball on the beach, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's absolutely amazing. And really I enjoyed volleyball much more than I enjoyed basketball uh, in high school. Uh, it was much lower stress for me. Uh, so much more fun, less stress on my body, but I, I certainly attribute all of the sports I played growing up with the, the success I had in basketball. Uh, just all those playing other sports, I, I, I'm a firm believer in uh, not allowing your child to specialize. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as far as your basketball, I mean, you were like the ultimate hustle guy, great defender, uh, brought good energy, but was there any player growing up that you looked up to that you tried to emulate your game after? Well, outside of my father and my brothers, uh, who all played Division I uh, basketball, uh, I, it was Patrick Ewing. I, I mean, I was a kid, I was watching him on Georgetown and, and uh, got my first recruiting letter from Syracuse and shortly after uh, John Thompson, who just passed away. Uh, what an amazing human being that guy is. Uh, he also recruited me a little bit, uh, but uh, I watched Patrick Ewing and, and just the way he would just enforce his will on both ends of the court in, in Georgetown. He tried to rip the rim off the basket every time. And, and so I tried to do that. I tried to play that way. And in high school, I think I did a very good job of that. Uh, in college, uh, you, you know, every level you grow up, you start realizing there's more and more people that are as good or better or faster or stronger or taller. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I got to college, I quickly learned that I would have a longer career if I knew what I did the best and did that the best. And so, as you mentioned, uh, you know, being the hustler, the scrapper, the guy that was the enforcer, you know, I can shoot threes. I, I averaged 70% from the free throw line my entire career, all three levels. So I, it doesn't mean that I can't shoot. And people are always surprised about that when I go back and play summer league basketball, uh, I go back and play against the, uh, the college kids at Kansas or, or wherever I was, I'd go play and they're like, whoa, I didn't know you could dribble. Like, well, yeah, because there's only 450 of us. <laughs> right, right. Play with Reggie Miller. I'm not going to shoot threes, all right? I'm going to go knock this guy down. And if he misses, I'm going to get the rebound and put it in. Right. Because I'm better at that than Reggie Miller. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, but but that, that, was, that was the benefit for me of going to Kansas as opposed to going to a smaller school uh, where I probably would have been the best player on the team. Uh, like, a, I don't know, if I'd have stayed and gone to UCLA, maybe I would have been the best player. It was Charles O'Bannon and me that were getting recruited to go there. Uh, you know, and, and maybe I wouldn't have been as good as an NBA player had I been the best player on my college team because it would have been harder for me to adjust to being a role player in the next level. Well, right. I was playing college basketball with Greg, behind Greg Ostertag and by, with Rafe LaFrance, with Paul Pierce, with Jock Vaughn all four years. Uh, Jock and I were roommates, and I learned a lot from my teammates, and I learned a lot about how to be a winner. And 
my rookie year in the NBA was the only team that I ever was playing on from high school, three years of varsity, four years of college, and 11 years in the NBA. My rookie year in Detroit was the only year I didn't play in the postseason of my entire career. So I was very fortunate to always be on good teams and learn those tactics of how to be a winner, how to be a better teammate, uh, as opposed to how do I be a better me uh, and make my points and my rebounds and everything go up uh, to maybe the detriment of the rest of the team. Well, you make, you make a great point too, because you know those that can that Kansas team is amazing, and you got Roy Williams as your coach, who's a great coach, and Jacques Vaughn ended up coaching the NBA, also, right? Oh yeah, he was uh, he was head coach of the Orlando Magic when he was like thirty. I think we were thirty four. Yeah, <laughs> right. He's he's one day older than me. We were roommates all four years of college, best men at each other's weddings. Uh, well, my first wedding, and. Um, <laughs> And uh, but we we he's a, he's one day older than me, so we we've always been very very close. And uh, I was a little dis disappointed that he didn't get the head coaching job permanently at Brooklyn this year. He's the lead assistant. He was the interim head coach when they fired the last one uh, for the bubble, and then they ended up getting kicked out of the bubble, and and uh, he got passed over for Steve Nash. But he's the lead assistant, and I'm sure another uh, head coaching job will come available. And as happens in the NBA, he'll get he'll get recycled in there. This is going to sound really funny, but it's an, I think it's an interesting question. So you room with him for four years, you know him really well. Did you see those coaching tendencies in him in college? Did you see oh, like, like this guy's going to be a coach later on? 100%. I mean, I mean, we were both, obviously our goal was to go to the NBA. He played one more year than I did uh, in the NBA. Uh, and then he finished his career in, in uh, San Antonio and, and went right into that coaching mecca uh, under Popovich and, and but yeah, I mean, even in even in college, Roy just trusted Jock. He's like, "Hey, you're the coach on the floor, go." And we hardly ran plays. We just listened to Jock, and we read and, and read defenses and reacted and, and made sure we got the ball in the right person's hand. Uh, and and Jock had a, a a lot to do with that. I mean, when you can trust a player of his intelligence uh, with the basketball, but as well as just his academic intelligence, his ability to grasp new concepts and understand the flow of the game and what's happening on top of actually reacting to what's going on in the game, but predicting what's going to happen uh, if he were to make this move. I mean, he's just incredibly intelligent human being. And uh, just the basketball sense, of, of course, uh, we, I, I, I'm still not throwing it out the window that he might end up being the head coach of the University of Kansas if Bill Self has ever uh, decides to retire or has moved on. Uh, I would think that Jock would be in the running, although I don't know that <laughs> once you're an NBA coach, it's kind of hard to go back. You can go from college to the NBA, but once you're an NBA coach, it's kind of hard to go back because then you're – it's a different set of, of rules, you know, with the, the recruiting and the travel, and you can only recruit certain parts of the year, and you only – you know, you have to worry about academics and all that other stuff that some coaches believe is more like babysitting. Uh, right. But that's why I think NBA coaches very rarely go from NBA coach back down to college and have success because it's just that set of rules in the NCAA that's just so ridiculous. Sorry, yeah. going off. <laughs> no, 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 that's what we love. No, yeah, no, I mean, it's great stuff, and you're so right. I mean, it really is hard to backtrack after that, but I think Jacques Vaughn would be such a great candidate for that job, especially when you bleed the Kansas, you know, Jayhawk blue and everything. I mean, it would be great for him to, to be over there. But uh, you played for Roy Williams. I mean – those practices must have been intense because, like you said, you had like Pierce, Jacques Vaughn, France, and Ostertag. They had to guard every day. I mean, that's an amazing team. But what do you think you learned most from playing with those guys in practice and also from Roy Williams? Like, what do you think you learned most uh, that really impacted you moving on in your career? 
Well, um, Jack and I, we, we met in a, a high school all-star game. Uh, it was Nike camp in Chicago. And we played well together. We got paired up for just, you know, just uh, crazy coincidence, I guess. Uh, him being from Pasadena and me being from San Diego. And uh, we got along. We, we played well together. And we, Kansas was both on both of our lists. And we decided, hey, you know, if you go there, I'll go there. And it was kind of joking, but then we ended up signing there, you know, independent. It wasn't like we were calling each other every day. But it was like, hey, man, go to Kansas, I'll go. Right, like all the kids these days. <laughs> we ended up going there. And, and uh, you know, Roy, Roy is the reason I went to Kansas. It, 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 Jock was a benefit, of course, and, and we're lifelong friends. But, but um, you know, Roy was the reason I went to Kansas. I, he never promised me a starting job. A lot of other coaches promised me a starting job or money or whatever. And uh, Roy didn't promise any of those things. He just said, look, you're going to come here and you're, I'm going to make you better. Uh, and if you have a chance at the NBA, I'm going to do my best to get you in there. But right now, you're not even going to start. I'm not going to promise you you're going to start. He had a senior, Richard Scott, and Greg Ostertag. Well, I'm not going to start over a senior uh, that started for three years. I'm not going to just come in and take his spot. I knew that. And Greg Ostertag, being who he was uh, at the time, you know, Roy said, look, you're going you're to come in and you're going to come off the bench. And I – after my freshman year, I'll never forget this. It was actually one of the most awkward, I think maybe the only time I've ever been really embarrassed in my entire life. Um, it was about midway through my sophomore year, uh, but backtrack to right after my freshman year, um, leading into my sophomore year, Roy is like, look, you've earned a starting spot on this team. You deserve to start on this basketball team, but I got a problem. I have Rafe LaFrance coming in and he's better than you. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he goes, well, he played, he compliment his, he doesn't play defense. He's, he's an offensive scorer. So he's like, he's going to start. And Greg Ostertag, as you well know, I only get something out of him every other Tuesday. So <laughs> if I don't start him, I won't get anything out of that big lug at all. And he's like, I love that kid, but if I don't start him. I ain't going to get nothing out of him but I'm going to make you a promise, Scotty. He's the only second guy in my life that, I, that doesn't bother me when he called me Scotty. It was my dad and Roy Williams. And uh, Roy said, but I promise you, you're going to average more minutes than Greg Ostertag. And I did. I averaged more minutes than Greg Ostertag did my sophomore year of, of college. But about halfway through that year, we're having a terrible practice. We lost a game, and we don't lose very much at Kansas, so it was a big deal. And we had an awful practice, and coach stops practice. He said, Dadgummit, I only got one guy on this team that wants to give anything to this team. <laughs> and, and he proceeded to relay that story that I just told you to the entire team. Nobody knew that story. Nobody knew that I was never promised a starting job, that I earned a starting job, that I was going to play behind Greg Jack no matter what, and Rachel Friends no matter what. But then he proceeds to tell the whole team, he earned a starting spot, and he's never asked for anything. And I'm just sitting there like, um, Coach, ew, yeah, this, is, this isn't my favorite day. It was really <laughs> embarrassing. And I was just, I, like I said, I think that's the only time in my entire life I've been completely mortified and embarrassed. I just felt tiny uh, because Roy was making me out to be this work ethic guy in front of the whole team and embarrassing me. He embarrassed the shit out of me in front of my whole team. Yeah, putting a target on your back for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I there's somebody I want to ask you about just because he's from the Reno Tahoe era, uh, area. I mean, he's like a high school legend, so this will be really fun for our local listeners. But you were teammates with Jared Haas. 
And uh, I just want to know what kind of teammate he was. And I mean, you must have a funny story about Jared Haas that you might be able to share with our listeners. I've got a lot of funny stories about Jared Haas. It rhymes with pass. Um, <laughs> that was the first time he, because uh, I called him Haas, because my oldest brother played at college and he had a teammate named Marty Haas. And so I thought it was Haas. And he goes, oh, it's Haas, rhymes with pass. I'm like, yeah, you better start doing that because you so far, you don't pass, you don't pass bro. <laughs> Um, but um, Jared uh, came in from playing his rookie year or his freshman year with uh, Jason Kidd at Cal Berkeley. And so he sat out our freshman year, my freshman year, Jock and I's freshman year, because of the transfer rule. And so we got to learn a lot about him during that year. He just practiced with us. And then when we were sophomores, uh, that's when we started playing together. Uh, but talk about a work ethic guy. I mean, the guy wrote a book in college called Floor Burns. I mean, the guy was covered in floor burns. He, was, he seemed to be injured all the time, but never – Never, always hurt all the time, but never injured. Right. Uh, he always had something banged up because he gave 100% to the game. Um, but, you know, Jared being uh, who he is, I mean, the kid, he's a good Catholic boy. He married a Lawrence, Kansas girl. I think he named one of his kids Lawrence, or his middle name is Lawrence. Um, and that was the head coach at Stanford. Another guy, I mean, we were just gifted with intelligent players uh, in the guard position. And then the big guys were big, dumb lugs, but we could play basketball. So, <laughs> Um, it was it was an incredible mix of players and talent and intelligence and and Jared's the head coach at, this, at Stanford right now and and he's kicking butt but um, you know one of the funny stories is well it's a weird connection I guess it's not an embarrassing story for him but it's a weird connection at one point he was dating Miss Kansas in college and it turned out uh, she ended up going on Survivor and winning Survivor and we had met each other through that connection in college, but then, you know, I went to go on this TV show Survivor and all of a sudden they were like, well, you know, that girl from Kansas was on here. And I was like, ooh, and they mentioned uh, her name. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I met her in college. So it was just kind of a funny, weird connection between, you know, Jared and Miss Kansas and me and Survivor. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a small world. Yeah, I was just gonna say, that is a very small world. What are the chances of that? But, um, you guys made deep runs into the NCAA tournament every year. You went to the Sweet 16, I think, three years in the Elite Eight, your senior year, I believe. Um, but, uh, I mean, which which loss hurt the most in the tournament? Because I know that all four of those must have hurt pretty bad because you guys are contenders pretty much every year. Yeah, well, it was it was my senior year. The, the, we did go to the Sweet 16 all four years. My junior year – was the year we lost we lost to Syracuse, I believe, to get to the Final Four. So I think my junior year was the Final Eight. That's uh, right. Senior year was a Sweet 16 loss to Arizona, who ended up winning the whole thing. What's crazy is I think my sophomore, if I remember correctly, sophomore year, um, UCLA won it all, and I I was going to go to school there. That was my second choice, actually, behind Kansas because I wanted to stay home. And then junior year, we lost to the team that won it, which was Syracuse. And then senior year, we lost to the team that won it, which was Arizona. And Arizona wasn't even that good. And I, I played with Mike Bibby in the NBA years later, and we got to talking about it. He was like, we weren't even that good. We didn't win the Pac-10. It was the Pac-10 back then. That's how old I am. And, uh, <laughs> but he was like, you know, we just kind of streaked and won six in a row. And, and actually, uh, I wanted to go to Lou Olson. I wanted to go play for Lou. Actually, you know what? It wasn't UCLA. Arizona was my second choice. I actually verbally committed uh, because – uh, one of my high school, well, we weren't teammates in high school. He was older than me, but um, he was my host, and he had gone to my high school, and he was on the team. And he took me to a party in, in Tucson, and I was like, I'm coming here. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a good party. I was very happy with, uh, with who was there. 
Uh, and I thought, wow, this, I could do four years here. This is a good spot. Plus, Ludolf is a great man and I, another one we just lost. Um, amazing human being and, and what a great coach he was and a great leader. Uh, yeah. I his wife that had passed on years ago. Uh, she made me breakfast too. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I like to talk. But uh, no, the, uh, the I, I even forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> Oh, the teams we lost to. Oh, the one that hurt the most. The one that hurt the most. It was it was my senior year because that was the culmination of Jared transferring, Paul Pierce staying, Jock Vaughn stayed. Jock Vaughn could have been a lottery pick. He was projected lottery pick after our junior year. He stayed, broke his wrist first day back at, at Kansas for our senior year. Broke his wrist and had to sit out the beginning of the season. Probably yeah. hurt his draft stock immeasurably by that. And still ended up a first round pick. Rainfield French stayed. Uh, you know, it was we were all just decided we were going to make a commitment to this team. We had two guys on our bench. Ryan Robertson and I were teammates in Sacramento years later. Uh, yeah. Billy Thomas got tryouts and, and, and was on several different NBA rosters. And so we had guys on our bench that ended up being pros for a little while. And yeah. so we just had a crazy team and, and we should we were undefeated. Um, and so we got to 23-0 and and then we lost the game uh, against Missouri and Rafe had an amazing game. I don't even know if I would change the outcome because I was hurt. I, I had a broken foot. Um, but it was uh, such an amazing double overtime game at Missouri, our rival. Uh, I don't know if I could change the outcome because it was just such an amazing game and Rafe was just a monster that game. Uh, and, and But then that was our first loss and then we didn't lose again until Arizona beat us in the, in the final or in the Sweet 16. So. We just we just knew we were the best team, and, and then when we end up coming up short, that was that hurt. I mean, we were all crying in the locker room afterwards. I don't, I don't know if anybody wasn't crying because we just all knew we were the best team and we were going to win it, and we didn't. Right. Yeah, that's got to be frustrating, especially with how good that team. I mean, was that's insane. Um, you were talking about draft night with Jacques. Let's talk about draft night for you. How confident were you going into the draft, and what was the whole draft process like for you? Well, back then, um, the draft wasn't on national TV. It was just, uh, it, it was regional, you know, if you were in a big market. But anyway, I was in Vegas. Uh, I had just gotten married. And uh, so I was in Vegas and uh, we were like, oh, we'll just turn on the TV. And like, it's not on TV. So we had to go to the sports book <laughs> and watch the TV, watch the TVs there with no volume. And there's, you know, all those TVs in the sports book and we're watching. And, uh, you know, the picks keep coming by, and we're like, oh, man, Jock hasn't been picked yet. That's weird. And then all of a sudden, they, they start picking. Uh, they should, they're start showing. I see clips of me on TV. I'm like, oh, cool. Jock must have got picked, you know. And I'm like, hey, Jock. <laughs> then also my phone rings. And I'm like, hello, hold on. Jock's getting picked. And they're like, no, you got picked. It's Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, shit. And then the uh, because, that, again, back then, I don't know if the rules have changed, but Back then, you couldn't have a phone in the sports book. So I right. be ushered out of the sports book because I was on the phone and I was like, well, I can't hang up. They're like, well, you got to get out of here. So I got kicked out. And so I completely missed Jack getting picked because I was on the phone with Detroit making plans on my flights. And they're like, where are you? And I was like, I was in, uh, I'm in Vegas because I was picked late first round, early second round. And it was a very big surprise that I got picked 19th to me. Because yeah. Detroit told me when I went to work out for them. Now, I worked out for every team from 22 to, well, at the time it was 28 or 29 teams, I can't remember. Uh, and then Detroit told me, 
we're looking at you at the first pick of the second round. We're, we're not wasting 19 on you. We want you at 30 or 29 or whatever it was. Right. So I worked out for all the other teams, 22, 23, 24, 25, except for Utah. And so they were, they, they were in the finals the year before. And uh, so it was Utah and, and Chicago that had the last two picks in the first round. And it ended up that uh, Jack got picked by Utah. But it, it was uh, – it was just crazy, and it was a testament to my work ethic that I went and worked out for all those teams, and every one of those teams said, we're taking him if he's available. So Detroit almost got bullied into taking me at 19 because they knew I wasn't going to be there. Every team I worked out for said they were going to take me. Uh, so it was cool that that, that that happened. It made me feel good about myself and, and uh, ready for the NBA. I got to ask you a question because it's kind of making me laugh now because, I mean, we, we, live, in, we live in Reno, so it's you know sports book town too. Did anyone notice you no. like, while you were there? No one was like, hey, that's the guy on TV that just got drafted? No. Because it's I mean, not like you're a short dude. I mean, like, I remember meeting you and you're like, you know, legit 6'11". Like, you well, know. One of my brothers was there. He's seven feet tall. And the only thing I remember is um, some, like, one of us was like, oh, like, holy shit, or whatever. <laughs> and... I just I remember somebody saying, "Oh man, that must be a, his brother or something," because they just they just assumed I would be in New York, you know, and not yeah, yeah, yeah. make it to the sports book. And so <laughs> I, that's the only part I remember of anybody actually recognizing me, because yeah. all I remember was getting kicked out of the sports book because I was on my phone. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. care who you are, you gotta go. I was like, "No, seriously, that's me on TV." Like, I don't care. Yeah, they don't care. <laughs> they care back in the day when that happened. <laughs> That's that's got to be the best draft day story I think we've heard on the show so oh, far. Yeah. I mean that that's incredible. But uh, I want to get into some some funny rookie stories. We always ask this, but uh, I mean, did you have any rookie duties? Did you have to get Joe Dumars' morning paper, get Rick Mahorn's coffee, so he didn't beat the hell out of you in practice? I mean, what kind of stuff did you have to go through as a rookie? Uh, it was actually Rick Mahorn rode me most uh, for, for all the rookie stuff. I mean, the other guys, Grant Hill would be like, hey, man, go get some donuts. But he didn't really want the donuts. He just wanted me to go get the donuts. <laughs> uh, but uh, Rick was like, I want you to bring him me a newspaper every day. So I had to go get him a newspaper uh, it, it, back in the Stone Ages when there were newspapers. Uh, and uh, I'd get him coffee, too. And then, you know, a lot of times we'd be like, you didn't put nothing in this coffee, did you? I was like, no, just be, you know, I'd mess with him back and then he'd, throw, you know, throw the coffee. He didn't, he, I don't think he ever once drank the coffee. He just wanted me to go get it, kind of like Grant and Donut. <laughs> um, and I remember one time uh, we were leaving for a, play, uh, a flight and back then we flew out of Detroit, uh, Fort Wayne, the big airport. They, they fly, well, they, then they flew out of Pontiac years later because it's closer to the Auburn Hills, but now they fly back out of Detroit with Fort Wayne, I'm sure, because they're back downtown. But back then, we drove all the way from wherever we lived, which most of us lived up by Pontiac, uh, where we played. Uh, and so it was a long drive. Well, the flight was delayed. There was an issue with the plane or something. And so they were like, hey, don't, don't be there at 3, be there at 7 or whatever. And so Rick was like, hey, man meet me here and we'll just hang out, you know, like, you're not going to go back home. Like, let's just go there and meet. So he gives me the address and I meet him over there. It's a strip club. <laughs> and it's like the middle of the afternoon. And he's like, come on, man, let's go. And I walk in with him and he just starts drinking. He's like, here, man, have some drinks. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're not pulling that one on me. I'm not getting drunk and getting on an NBA flight. Like my first <laughs> flight ever. I was like, I'm not that dumb. Shit. <laughs> 
That's awesome. Um, what what about your welcome to the league moment? And what I mean by that was who's the first guy to really burn you to where you're thinking, holy shit, I'm in the NBA? Well, it was the Kim Olajuwon that burned me because I was like, okay, I'm going in to guard a team. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm guarding a team. And I'm like, okay, where'd he go? <laughs> and he was just gone. Yeah, he, he hit you. Right off me. He was gone. He hit, he hit you with that dream shake, huh? Oh, yeah. He just spun right off me and he was gone. But I don't count that as my welcome to the league moment because, as I mentioned earlier, Patrick Ewing was kind of my childhood and idol. And so that was my welcome to the league moment. Like, it was great getting to know and being tutored by Rick Mahorn every day. I mean, that was an honor. And Joe Dumars, their knowledge just dripped off of them. Uh, yeah. Same thing with Grant Hill. Grant Hill to this day, every time I see him, I give him a big hug. And his parents were always so nice to me. And they're just wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, and so I'm not knocking any of that. But my welcome to the NBA moment was I get on the court and I'm guarding Patrick fucking Ewing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I'm in the NBA. There's only 450 of us. <laughs> and I'm one of them. Yeah. Yeah, he's got to be sweaty as hell, too. I remember that guy used to sweat like every game of the game seven, man. Yeah, so. him, him and Shaq, uh, I mean, there were some other guys not as notable, but, the, but those two, God, they were just like, every time you hit him, you're like, oh, God. Yeah. So I couldn't guard him and just slide right off you. Yeah. Just, you, just, you, just, you, you hit him and then wipe your arm off and hit him again. Like, Can I get a towel? Can I get a towel over here? Yeah, that's, that's when you got to go for the big wristbands, keep them there. Okay. But. <laughs> But uh, so you got traded uh, to the Hawks after your time with the Pistons. It was your first time being traded. And sometimes you hear about organizations being pretty ruthless when it comes to the business side of that. But how did you find out? I mean, were you in like the sports book when you found out getting traded? I mean, did you have any like crazy experience finding out when you got traded? Oh, yeah, it's even worse. Um, (laughs) So there was a lockout after my rookie year. And the lockout, finally, long story short, the lockout ended in about February. And so we were all back there working out. We were allowed to go back into the facility. And I go in to work out one time, and Lindsey Hunter comes in, and I'm like, I walk in, and he goes, hey, man, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> and I go, ah, what the fuck are you doing here? Ha, ha, And he goes, no, man, it was in the paper this morning. You got traded. And I was like, wow. What? They can do that? And he goes, you might want to go talk to the GM. And so the GM, Rick's son, made me wait outside his office for an hour. Wow. He wouldn't even talk to me. And then I finally got in and he goes, well, he kind of guessed. And I'm like, he guessed. That means it was a possibility. And you couldn't even let my agent know or let me know. Like, maybe think about it. I just, my wife just had a baby five months ago. And I haven't seen the kid in three months because I've been back here training by myself and my kids in Kansas with my wife. I'm like, fuck you, man. So I get traded to Atlanta and, for Christian Leitner. And it turned out they just wanted rid of Christian Leitner's contract. So they didn't really want me. And how I knew was um, I would go to practice and Hall of Fame coach Lenny Wilkins would look at me and go, you, guard Deakey. And he was talking about Mikemi Matumbo. <laughs> so I was like, he doesn't even know my name. I don't think I would have played a Hawks very long. And sure enough, I got cut not too long later. And then that's yeah. when I was in Sacramento Kings. Yeah. But I have another awful story about being traded. Uh-oh. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Uh-oh. I was, uh, after my third year of my new contract, I signed a six-year deal with Sacramento. So this is my fifth or sixth year in the NBA. It's after three of my six years deal that I signed with Sacramento. I'm part of the future of the franchise. We had just gone to the playoffs again, coming off of 2003, another deep playoff run, not to the Western Conference Finals, but we got into the playoffs and, and had a good run. 
And so we're thinking we're going to be together for a while, maybe a little retool, but we're going to be together. We're building a dynasty. And we're, I'm back in Kansas as I always was, uh, playing cards with my friends. And they're like, hey, man, turn on the TV. Like, instead of what we're watching, let's watch the, the NBA or whatever. And sure as shit, uh, ticker comes across. In a three-team deal, the Indiana Pacers trade Brad Miller for Scott Pollard going there and Hito Turkoglu's going. I'm like, no, motherfucker, again? <laughs> Man. I had no idea. No idea. So both times I got traded, it was in the media first. And, uh, yeah, the NBA is ruthless. I made a movie about uh, it's loosely based on my life. It's called The Prophet. And uh, I starred as me in the movie, which was uh, it was a difficult acting job for me. Uh, <laughs> my acting muscles. But um, – it, it, I never released it. It, 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 uh, it. It's a decent film, but there was a lot of episodes, uh, parts of the film that I didn't really love, so I never really released it. I showed it in Sacramento, I showed it in Kansas, I showed it here in Indiana. Um, and it got good reviews from you know people that came, not just my friends, but people that came. But I just never felt comfortable releasing it all the way. It just felt good to make it. Uh, but you know, I, I used a line in that movie, and it's it's I stole it from Trading Places. I mean, you. You're a pork belly and as a professional athlete, and you just get bought and sold at the, the whim of a billionaire. And that's that's what you have to get used to. You have to understand that going into the game. And that's what I tell young guys when they say, you know, what's the hardest part about being in the NBA? It's like, well, the work ethic, the grind, the travel, and all that, the physical part, but the mental part, being getting used to it, being your job, and not getting your feelings hurt when you get traded because it's going to happen. Well, right. especially with kids, too. Well, that was the worst part of the family. Right. You know, I. The, at the end of my career, my family just stayed in Indiana and I went and signed a one-year deal with Cleveland and then they came halfway through the year. And then when I signed with Boston, same thing, uh, because I had a one-year deal, I wasn't going to move my whole family there and you know buy a house and, and settle in. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it, when you get traded, especially not just when it's a one-year deal, but when you get traded, you, you, you're gone. Like you're on the next thing smoking to the new city and so your family's left to pack up your shit and your house and you got to trust them to do all that stuff and get it handled and break your lease or sell your house or whatever. So, I mean, the, the personal strife that you go through that they don't talk about, is like, yeah, we get paid a lot of money. I'm not saying we don't. That's awesome. The paychecks are great. And I wish I was playing now because the paychecks are even better now. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but the personal toll that it puts on your personal relationships, your familial relationships, uh, your spousal relationships, it's, it's rough. It's not for the faint of heart. And I've, I've seen people wash out just from that. Yeah. And fans don't understand that either. They don't understand all the stuff that you guys go through everyday life. I mean, you guys are people too. You have families, like you just said, selling your house. I mean, that's no joke. I just sold my house and it was not fun and I'm not doing shit, you know, so <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine what it's like being a professional athlete, but you know, I was surprised that the Hawks didn't keep you because they only had one backup center on the roster, and that was like 60-year-old Mark West. I felt you could have been like an amazing backup for Matumbo, but it all worked out because you got to go to Sacramento and be a part of that special rebuild. But obviously the addition of Weber, Jay Will, Peja, Vladi, I mean, all of it happened so fast. But my question to you is when did you start realizing that you guys could be a real playoff team? When did you start noticing the fans were realizing that too? Well, the fans in Sacramento from minute one were always the, the greatest. I mean, they were they were sold out even when the Kings sucked. And so yeah. it, it was an incredible place to play and, and be a player for, for that fan base. Um, I, I mean, they treated a nobody like me like I was a rock star. Every time, everywhere I went, I mean, 
I couldn't go to the grocery store in Sacramento. Literally went shopping at midnight to get groceries just so I could limit my exposure to people. Because if I went during regular hours, I would sit there and sign autographs for an hour because I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> and, and that's weird because I was a backup, you know? It wasn't like I was Michael Jordan trying to go to Target or whatever, <laughs> you know? Or the, like he shuts the whole place down, buys it out so he can go shopping or whatever. Right. And so uh, that was odd. But the when, when we knew we were going to be a playoff team, it really was when we made the playoffs. That first year, we all got together. Uh, in that lockout season. And, uh, you know, I always sat at the end of the bench. People wondered why I always sat at the end of the bench. It's because that was my third team in two years. And I, I sat at the end of the bench. I'm like, well, maybe my career is over. You know, this is my third team. I'm, maybe I'm not going to be an NBA player. And, I, and doubts started to creep in. And we're playing against the Jazz. And uh, Chris Weber and Vlade were kind of in foul trouble, having trouble with Ostertag and, and Carl Malone. And uh, so – they go to Lawrence Funderburg and he gets smoked by Carl Malone. He just can't handle his physicality. And then they go to this rookie, uh, Jerome James, because he's huge and, yeah. and he doesn't do very well. And so finally, Rick Adelman's like, Pollard, let's go. And I'm come running in from the end of the bench. And I went in and I busted Carl Malone's ass. I mean, that, that really, that, and I, I didn't dominate him. I'm not saying that I, I kicked his ass or anything like that. I'm just saying I frustrated the shit out of him. And that's, that, that, was when my NBA career really started was yeah. because I finally had a great game. And then we ended up playing Utah in the playoffs and I had a good series against them. I already knew Greg Ostertag, so he didn't do anything uh, on offense uh, against us. And then when I'd switch over to Carl Malone, I, for whatever reason, I could get in his head and I frustrated Carl Malone. He was used to outstronging people, just being that big, strong guy. He didn't move me. And he didn't outstrength me. And I didn't look that strong, but I was, I was very, very strong. And it just, I just got in his head. I bothered the shit out of him. And uh, I'll never forget <laughs> one good thing that happened to me is uh, when we're playing against him, some of the older guys were like, hey, when you go set a screen on John Stockton, watch out. He's going to hit you in the balls. And I'm like, nah. And I went over and I protected my balls just in case. And man, sure as shit, he just <laughs> fired a fist right at him. And luckily, my, he hit my hand. And I was like, thanks, Vets. I appreciate you guys. <laughs> my future children appreciate you guys. But, yeah, John Stockton liked to hit people in the groin. Yeah. Uh, he's dirty, but he's so good. Yeah, I, I heard he's a little bit on the dirty side. And, you know, that series was, you know, heartbreaking because I always cheered for the Kings back then. And yep. you guys are so close. I think you're up 2-1 in that series. And it seemed like – you guys had that in the bag, but did it just come down to experience? Or, I mean, what do you think happened in that series? 100%. That was the first time uh, that I think m almost all of us, besides Vlade and I think Chris maybe had played in the playoffs before, but Jason Williams was a rookie. Pedro yeah. Stockovich was basically a rookie. He'd only played with the Kings. Um, John Barry had bounced around. I'm not sure that he had been on a playoff team before. I'd never been on a playoff team before in the NBA. My rookie year, we, didn't, we just missed the playoffs. So – you know, you were playing against the Utah Jazz who had just played that the last dance was that season. The year before, that was that season, 98, 97, 98, uh, was the year that they went to the finals and, and ended up losing. So they, they had had these tr incredible battles in the playoffs, and they were playoff tested, playoff proven, and had that experience. And, and it, when you just know how to win in the playoffs, you know how to win in the playoffs. And, and that's the only reason they beat us. They weren't better than us. They were decline. They were on the decline for sure. That was the end of their run. Uh, but they just had that experience and and just took care of business when they needed to. And we just didn't know how to do that. 
Yeah, because I mean, the average age on that team was like 45. I mean, that, they definitely <laughs> had the experience. But uh, what was it like playing with Jason Williams? Because I mean, we saw what he can do in games. I bet he did even crazier shit in practice. I mean, is he the best you've ever seen as far as like court vision and ball handling? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's a shame that there isn't footage of him practicing because in practice was when he could experiment without the referees there. Now, obviously, there are certain things you can't do in an NBA game no matter what. But when he's pulling his jersey out and passing the ball from the front into his jersey and it falls out the back of his jersey, perfect bounce pass to the left side when he throws it right and it circles around to his left behind his back and he doesn't touch it with his hands. I mean, the kid was just a musician, a magician with the ball. Um, it was it was truly incredible. And, you know, I, I played with some great passers with vision. Jock was a very good passer, no-look passes. You know, he was – he grew up around Magic Johnson, so he did a lot of Magic Johnson type stuff um, with the high knees and, and over the shoulder and all that kind of stuff. But Jason, you just always had to have your hands ready or he'd hit you in the nose. I mean, you just had to have them ready. You, like it was it was very easy uh, and a quick learning experience. You just go, yep, Jason's got the ball. Make sure your hands are ready. And he made me a better uh, – he had made my hands better because I just knew the ball was coming. Some, at some point, so just be ready. And every time I'd set a screen and my guy would go off of me because I'm not an offensive threat and I'm wide open underneath the basket, all of a sudden, bam, there it is. And I just lay it up uh, yeah. because Jason saw that. And so it was just – it was it was a great experience playing with him, but also off the court, man. He's such a great guy. He's so funny. Yeah. His West Virginia accent was just – him and Randy Moss <laughs> together. They were high school teammates in football and basketball. And I'll yeah. never forget one night we went out in Minneapolis when Randy was playing for the Vikings and we were playing the Timberwolves. And, man, we sat there, and between Jason and Randy, you couldn't understand a word either one of them was sitting <laughs> banjo. Just <laughs> It's hilarious. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, those Kings teams were awesome. I mean, we're, like I said, we're, we, we, you know, we live in Reno, and, and that was the local team that we got on, on the local network were the Kings. And uh, it was just an amazing team to watch. One of the things that, that, you know, I want to ask you about is you guys seem really unselfish on that team. It seemed like everybody had a piece of the ball. It seemed like the ball movement was amazing, obviously, with Williams. But it seemed like everybody was working together. Um, what other major thing made you guys so unselfish? Well, it, I, I think it was a perfect storm. Um, with Chris's injury, I think in his mind, he wasn't sure how much longer he was going to be able to play. Vlade was at the end of his career and plus had the war-torn uh, homeland going on at the same time. So he was half-ass, you know, paying attention anyway because he's on the phone all night making sure his family is alive. Sure. And then he'd stumble into practice without having slept the night before. Um, and so there was that. The veterans were great, but they were distracted, to say the least. Rick Adelman, amazing coach that trusts his players. Now, there's players' coaches – that are lackadaisical and they're like, they just want to be their coach, their players' friends. That, that wasn't Rick. Rick was the guy that was just like, hey, look, I'm going to trust Jason Williams with the ball. I know I'm going to have six, seven turnovers some games, but there's going to be other games where I'm going to get 25 assists out of this kid. And so he trusted the players. And when you had John Barry coming off the bench or Tony Delk coming off the bench that first year, and, you know, the, the Corliss Williamson, the big nasty – and Lawrence Funderburk, the big religion. And, you know, it was just, it was just a, a weird cast of characters that just all seemed to go, you know what? 
if we're going to go down, let's go down in flames. Let's go have fun. And, and we did. And everybody just kind of like clicked mentally. And then as the team, you know, the five seasons I was there, they would pull out this piece and put in another piece. And it just clicked. It was like, yeah, this guy's known as a guy that just needs his shots or he's not, well, he's not going to work here if he's got to get shots to the detriment of this team. And, and but it, it always clicked in and it always worked. And um, I, I can't pin it on any one thing other than just there was a whole lot of things. Uh, but I think it starts at the top. I think the Maloofs did a great job of spending money where it meant to be spent, but also here, you basketball people do the basketball stuff. We'll just, we'll just own and pay the bills, but you guys do it. And Jeff Petrie had free reign to go get some stuff done. And him and Rick Adelman were old teammates, uh, had been together in Portland. And so that was a good symbiotic relationship for them. And that, I, you know, it just kind of trickled down from there. It's like, well, when the owners and the management and the coaches get along, uh, the players kind of fall in line too. It's like, hey, this is a good atmosphere. It wasn't like it was all fun and games, uh, but it was a good atmosphere of, of hey, get, come in, get your work done, and we're going to have a blast beating the shit out of everybody, and we did. Well, and you, and you make good points too because the fans were super behind the team for sure. Arco was super loud. Good Lord. I mean – Anytime you went and saw the ICA game there, it was crazy. The home court advantage. It's a small market team, too, you know, at least back in the day, you know, because you're playing the 1030 and night games on the East Coast, essentially, if you're an East Coast kid. So I didn't know anything about Sacramento when I grew up in New Jersey. So it was kind of like an under-the-radar team. But the fans, like you said earlier in the, in the interview, super behind that team. Um, I think the Ori shot game. My God, I mean, what a heartbreaker that was. Because I felt like that was the, that was the series that I think you guys win the whole thing if you get past them, personally. Um, <laughs> what did you say? Everyone knew that. Whoever won that series was winning. The Nets were waiting on us. I mean, and even the Nets knew that they were not going to win the shot. No, they, they weren't built for that, for sure. Um, but then the Tim Donahue situation. Could you feel something was off when he was officiating those games? Did anybody have a clue he was betting on basketball? I mean, did it feel fishy? You know, did you have anything that there, Tim, Tim, there's there's several referees that you get to see more than others because, as I called them, they were company men. Um, and I think Tim Donahue used that phrase as well, but I called him company man for a different reason because it was, you know, there is a grading system in the NBA and when you get to the, to the playoffs, there's a bunch of referees that you're just not going to see. They're the lower graded refs. Sure. So they even have status reports and veteran, you know, and, and when, when you see a young ref that's in the playoffs, that ref is good. That ref is very, very good because you usually don't see that. Usually it's the same four to seven referees for every game in the playoffs. Like they just, it's just those people or 10 of them, I guess. Um, And so when, when you see some of these same guys, you get used to them. Tim was one of those guys. He was pretty highly rated. So you see him in those pressure games, you see him in the playoffs, uh, you know, and would I say that I knew something was off? No, but you do know how people ref games. I knew how Joey Crawford was going to ref a game. I knew how Danny Crawford was going to ref a game. And we actually did a stat in, when I was in Sacramento. It was a ridiculous number that whenever Danny Crawford re- refereed one of our games versus the Lakers, we won like 20% of the time. 
But if he didn't ref us against the Lakers, we won 80% of the time. So, um, you know, when we see Danny Crawford walk in and we're playing the Lakers, we're like, well, shit, we're going to lose, you know. But did he have money on the game? I don't know. But it just – you get to know him because you see him so much. And there's not that many referees. There's not that many players. So you you get to know how and who's going to ref a game a certain way. Um, but do I know, did I notice if, if it was janky because Donahue was repping the game? Nah, not any more than anybody else. Yes, because yeah. you're, you're thinking, like, there's obviously special treatment, like Jordan's going to get the calls more, things like that. So some of the stars are getting the calls more, maybe, or some of the guys, like, so that's the vibe you guys are getting, but you're not getting, like, man, he, he's got to have money on this game because of all these calls he's making against us. I, I can't think of any game that Tim Donahue was refing where I was like, damn, he, he, you know, we joke about it with anybody. You know, if somebody makes a bad call, I'm like, man, you got money on this? You know, but that's just right. a jab. That's yeah. just, you know, that's just a jab. It wasn't like a consistent thing with, with Donahue or any other ref where I'd be like, oh, man, they got money on the game. But, you know, to your point about the stars getting calls, uh, you know, people always ask, like, why is it they ref the number on the jersey? I'm like, well, listen. Michael Jordan had the ball in his hands 40 minutes of every 48. Of course he's going to get hit more. If they call every foul, the game's going to take five hours to go. So they do let stuff go a whole lot more with, like, LeBron James with the ball right now because he's got the ball in his hand 47 minutes out of 48. Sure. Uh, He gets hit every time he touches the ball. So um, do they get preferential treatment? For sure. But they certainly also get hit way more than any other player at any position. That's so to be great. fair, you know, they, they get calls, but they also get hit way more. That's a great point. Um, were you surprised? Like, what was your reaction when it came out that he was betting on the games? Um, you know, you'll never convince me he was the only one. Yeah. That's the only thing I, you know, and I'm not saying the NBA is corrupt. I'm just right. saying if one referee is, has been gotten to, to that point that he's betting on games or he's, he's helping – maybe the mafia or whatever the allegations are. Right. He's not the only one. There's right. just, there's no way it was a lone wolf situation like David Stern said. Uh, so that's the only thing I, I, mean, I don't know, but I'm just saying <laughs> my belief system, I can't fathom a league that had one, one referee that got, got to, to that level and nobody else. And, and, you know, to Tim Donahue's credit, he's kept quiet about it. If he knows of who else it was, he hasn't said any, any names, as far as I know. Yeah, he didn't sell anybody else. So you were, you didn't see any other rest in the sports book when you were on the phone or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one thing they could get fired for is is betting on any sports of any kind. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, that, they, that makes they, sense. They can't even be in a sports book or a casino. That's part of the rules of being an NBA rep. I don't even think they're allowed to step foot in it. Wow. That makes sense. You know, there's a there's a famous team photo of you guys uh, flipping off the camera. I want to know whose idea was that to flip off the camera. <laughs> uh, I, you know what? I don't remember. But they were like, "Do a goofy one." I was like, <laughs> "I don't know if it was me. I don't know if it was Bobby Jackson. It wasn't Lawrence Funderburg. If you look closely at the photo, he's doing the cross and he's pointing to God." Okay. He's the only one that's not flipping anybody off. Everybody else is doing the double banger, and he's. <laughs> He's doing the cross with Jesus with his arms crossed <laughs> each other, and he's pointing up to the Lord and Savior. Like, Lord, help me. Get me away from these heathens. <laughs> yeah, because that photo was probably the background on my iPhone for a solid two years, and that was not long ago. So I, I love that photo. 
Lawrence uh, and I were, were very close, and I make fun of him because we were, of our relationship. We were kind of polar opposites. He's very religious, and I grew up very religious, and I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but not religious, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, totally. Uh, but we sat near each other on the bus, and there were times where I'd get on the bus, I'd sit down, and, you know, sometimes you have to fart, right? And you just do <laughs> And yeah. I remember one time I farted. It, it smelled bad. They usually don't, but this one was bad. He looked over at me and goes, you're going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you know, your next stop was at Indiana. We already talked about how you found out how you got there. Um, but, I mean, those are some great teams also. But you're also at, um, at one of the most historic games of all time, but not for the best reasons, but the Mouse at the Palace. And I, I understand if you can't go too deep into detail, but if you can, I mean, can you just explain maybe the buildup going into that night or, I mean, just the atmosphere of that night? I mean, what was that whole experience like? That must have been insane. Well, the, the rivalry was there. It was like the, the, the Lakers and the Kings. Uh, when you're familiar, you're seeing each other in the playoffs, you're seeing each other in the preseason, the regular season, you get familiar and you get pissed off and it's a rivalry and that's a good thing. Uh, you know the other people. Uh, and so there was a lot of animosity built up to that. And we're, we're pounding them. We're, we're smacking the shit out of them. And they're pissed about it because they thought they were better than us. Yeah. And, you know, the end of the game, it shouldn't have had the starters in there. And I'm not blaming Rick Carlisle, but he shouldn't have had the starters in there. Rod Artest had no business being in a blowout. Game was over. And if he's not in there, none of this happens. But it happened the way it happened. And it was a surreal moment, you know. And the worst part about it was when people start running out of the stands on the court. Now, most of them are normal-sized people, actually, well, all of them, you know, uh, are normal-sized people. And, and the thing about it that was funny, in retrospect, was they get down there like this, like this, and then they get down and they go, uh-oh, <laughs> they're way bigger than I thought they are. <laughs> and right, yeah. their face changes and they're like, okay, yeah, not, and they, they run back, you know, or like shout, shout something and then run away. Um, so that happened quite a bit, but um, there were just so many incidences that ended up being way better than it could have been. There yeah. could have been some really awful things to come out of that night. Now, it was awful enough. I'm not saying it was an A+. Plus. It was a D-, minus, but it could have been an F-. minus. Uh, and luckily, nobody lost their life because there was a guy that came down. He was one of those guys. He came running down, and I was down there in a suit because my back was broken. And um, Jermaine O'Neal is standing next to me, yep. and this guy comes running down. And luckily for this kid's life, Jermaine slipped on beer because he was he was 270 pounds full force taking a swing with that big hand of his and right. he right at this guy's grill and that guy if he hits him square in the jaw might have killed him. That, that was, was a job. That, that was a guy that looked like turtle from Entourage, right? That's it. Yep. And <laughs> luckily for that guy's life, Jermaine slipped on beer, barely grazed his chin, hit his shoulder, still knocked him on his ass, yeah. but just hit his shoulder. And it knocked him all the way down, and that was the end of it. And we just, and that was when the refs finally allowed us to just call a game. They weren't going to try to play out the game, and we just all ushered to the corner. I was pushing people. I got beer thrown on me, and popcorn, and all kinds of food. Um, and then at the end, we get in the locker room, and Ron Artest looks around and goes, "Hey, man, you think we're going to get fined for this?" <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ron has gotten a hold of his mental uh, problems. He was not on medication back then. He wouldn't take it. He's doing amazing now. Ron always loved him. Uh, I, always, I hated being his teammate because he was unpredictable because of his mental state. But he sure. has gotten help. He, he is an advocate for mental health awareness. And I love the human being that he always has been, but especially 
now that he's confronted his mental illness, admitted his issues back in the past. Uh, and, and I just wish that he had been that way back then. Of course, it's a very different outcome uh, if Ron is, is uh, as stable then as he is now. Yeah, you know, that game was crazy, too, because we had watched it and did a special on it. And the announcers that game thought you guys were going to come back on the court to finish the game. <laughs> yeah. That was insane. Did you guys watch it? Have you watched it since? I mean, you had to have, right? You never watched it after. So the only recollection you have was basically being there at the game. You never watched the video after to, to kind of see the whole entire thing. The only highlight I saw was because one of our announcers, Mark Boyle, the radio voice of the Pacers, uh, Ronnie actually jumped over him and hit him. And it actually fractured one of his cervical uh, spine. And so he broke his neck because Ronnie jumped on him to get up to that guy in the stand. So that I watched that video because I heard that after the fact. I was like, oh my gosh, he broke his back. Yeah. And I just wanted to see how it happened. And yeah, Ronnie, just big old Ron Artest jumped over him and landed on him and broke his neck. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. And uh, I mean, that's a nice ass suit you're wearing too. So hopefully that didn't get too damaged. <laughs> but um, I mean, but my last question about the Mouse of the Palace, is there maybe anything from that night that we wouldn't know that's interesting that maybe affected the rest of your season? Or I mean, does the video basically just tell the whole story? Um, just the, I, I think it gets brushed over the next time we came back, there was a bomb threat in the locker room. Uh, right. And, uh, I, you know, the, I think all the stories about the, the that actual night have been told. Um, I can't remember anything other than the one I just told you about Ron going, are we going to get fined? But even that <laughs> one I told, uh, publicly, I'm, I'm not the only one that's told that one. Um, yeah, it, just the fact that there was a lot of other incidents. There was a guy that picked up a chair and I'm not going to name names because it wasn't public knowledge. Uh, but guy that picked up a chair and swung it at some people and, and other fists were thrown and other body slams and all kinds of stuff that could have ended up being way, way, way worse. Somebody could have lost life uh, because when you, when you mix giants and normal sized people, uh, that's why there's weight classes in boxing and wrestling and yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. You just, we're all really big and strong. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that helped was it was a blowout, which is good so that a lot of people had left. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it wasn't super crowded. And then, like, the police presence, too. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't much of a security police presence that. That game actually changed that rule. There's, there's now much more police presence, and as well as uh, just the staff has to be more well trained. And if you know it, well, you wouldn't, but it, they very subtly made changes to the end of game procedures where the staff starts coming down and blocking off the entrances. And you're not allowed as a fan to get anywhere near the arena, the floor towards the end of a, of a game in the NBA anymore. And it's all these rules were created as a result of that night because there wasn't much, uh, to your point, there, there wasn't much security there. Um, right, yeah. Got some, some geriatric people wearing a little red vest and the fans are like, backing <laughs> it up and running down. So um, I felt bad for the staff too because they were overwhelmed. Uh, but yeah, the, I think the greatest thing about that night was that it was a blowout and it wasn't still full with 20,000 angry fans, right? Uh, yeah. just a couple thousand. Yeah. yeah. And that's interesting you say that about the staff. So I remember trying to get Todd Fuller's autographs a kid and he blew me off when I got that close. So, I mean, it's interesting that you can't do that anymore. So nope. uh, after the game and you have to have a pass. Yeah. But uh, you went on to Boston, and I'm a, I'm a Celtic fan, and you're on that championship team. I loved that team. Uh, obviously, you guys had talent, but what is it that made that group work, and how special was it to finally get that ring? 
Uh, I think the only thing that made that team work is it was our first year. I think the personalities were doomed to fail long-term. Uh, Kevin Garnett is not uh, my favorite human being. Now, was he my favorite teammate? One of my favorite teammates of all time. He's an absolute bully, absolutely backs up his talk with his work ethic. I loved being teammates with Kevin Garnett. But it's hard to be around him off the court, I think. But yeah. you know what? It doesn't mean I don't love the guy. I'm just saying we don't call each other and say, hey, man, let's go hang out. Right. Uh, Paul Pierce is kind of the opposite. Paul is just a gym rat. He doesn't talk. He doesn't bully people. He, does, he just goes in and works more than anybody else. He's in the gym from morning to night every day. And Ray Allen, absolute silence. Give me the ball. I will make threes. Don't talk to me other than that. And so those personalities, the big three, they couldn't be much more different. And probably, like I said, I, I think the only reason it worked was because it was the first year they were together. As we saw it unravel after the fact. Now, I like to take credit for that because they didn't re-sign me. I thought I was the glue guy. I kept John Rondo on the court. Doc Rivers threw him out of practice multiple times, and I'd have to go talk to Rajon Rondo and say, hey, man, he's seen greatness in you. He wouldn't be yelling at you if he didn't see greatness. If you sucked, he wouldn't be screaming at you and riding you the way he is. He was a guard. He sees what you see. Right. And he wants you to be great. So, I mean, the, that was the magic, was, was just that it was that cast of characters that year. There was no doubt in my mind this was not going to be a, a dynasty. I knew it was not. It, there was no way that all of those persons, Big Baby Davis, I mean, Tony Allen, Scalabrini and me are just sitting there going, what a fucking clown show this is. <laughs> yeah. All of these characters. Now, talk about, like, the Sacramento Kings that were all together and on the same page for whatever reason, for multiple years, you plug one guy in, you pull, plug another one in, and it was just working. But the, the Boston Celtics, uh-oh, no. Those, the big three didn't get along, and you could tell. They were just different personalities, no big deal, but we got one. Yeah. No, yeah, you definitely got the one. And you're right about the glue guy thing. I actually think that you're right because nobody I'm, – I'm a, I'm a coach, so I'm, like, all about the bench guys and, you know, the managers, things like that. But the glue guys are extremely important. Like you talking to Rondo, I mean, who's running the team? Rondo, he's the point guard. And you to be able to talk to Rondo and kind of get him, you know, back in track is a really important and underrated thing that doesn't show up in the stat box. So I totally agree with you on that. And I mean, losing somebody like you or, you know, whoever else, if they lost it was a glue guy, I mean, that that's very important to teams. So totally get that. But um as far as the – did you choose to retire going out as a champ or were you maybe thinking about coming back another year or two for another team or what was the final decision on that? Um, actually, the year before I was choosing to retire, I, I had gotten to the NBA Finals with the Cavaliers. Ten years was my goal. I had enough money. And I figured, you know what, I'm never going to knock that door down, damn it. I've been on great teams my whole career. My whole life, I was in the state playoffs in high school, the NCAA in college, all four years, Sweet 16, and 10, nine out of 10 years at that point in the NBA playoffs. Apparently, it's just not in the cards. It's hard to win a championship. So when somebody does, it's very respected. Um, but then Boston called and said, hey, come help us win a championship. And I, I was like, no. Originally, I, was, I said, no, I'm healthy, I'm good. And I went there, and I got hurt. I hurt my ankle. And they, were, they did an MRI. I, I missed most of the training camp. I went on the t- trip to Rome, and they sent me home before we went to London because my ankle blew up. And uh, they did an MRI, and they said, you're getting surgery. And I said, well, can I make it through the season? They said, well, you might make it through the season, but you might not. And 
you, you need surgery. And I said, okay, if I get the surgery now, how long? And he goes, four months minimum. And I said, well, that's half the season. I'm gonna, I'll be coming back in February and I'm gonna miss this playoff run. I said, I'm gonna take my chances. Well, it turned out my, my ankle lasted four months and in February is when it gave out. And so I had it rebuilt and then they did an MRI of my other ankle and it was exactly the same. Yeah. And so they rebuilt that one. So I had both my ankles rebuilt. I missed the playoffs for that reason. And so uh, even then, uh, that summer, there were teams that called and said, hey, we're not going to give you a guaranteed deal because we don't know what you're like. But if you come down here, Atlanta was one of them, actually. Uh, they wanted another shot at me. Uh, and I think it was Philly and a couple other teams that just wanted a, a glue guy, a backup, you know, center that's vet, veteran, sees things from the end of the bench, you know, can, they, can go over and talk to guys because of where I've been. And, uh, you know, they offered me to come to training camp, earn a spot, and then you know, obviously that, at that point you get a guaranteed contract. And, and I just decided my ankles were rebuilt. Uh, I was still 33 years old, young, uh, still had, you know, like, I just didn't think it was worth it. I didn't, I didn't want to go play on a, a non-playoff team uh, and, and end my career that way. I, I figured it would be easier to just be healthy and, and finish on as, as a champion, like you said. Yeah, and I, I thought it was an excellent way to go out. Um, in, I mean, maybe bias because I'm a Celtic fan, but going out a champion is an awesome thing. <laughs> But the one thing that made no sense to me was Rajon Rondo had apparently left you and Ray Allen out of the championship reunion. I mean, that was a shock to me, and it didn't sit right, and it just kind of felt like it was more of a buddy-buddy thing. Uh, but, I mean, was it a shock to you, or did you ever get an explanation for why? Uh, didn't know about it until it went on social media, and everybody's like, well, you didn't get an invite. I'm like, I don't care. I, you know, it, it was, what, seven, eight years later, Right. Uh, when that happened. And I just, I, I haven't talked to any of those guys except Paul Pierce, not once since. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I've run into Scalabrini at games because he travels for Boston on their media. And I was doing media for a year uh, in 2015. And so I'd see him once in a while when I was doing media. But I mean, that was just, that wasn't like we were calling each other. It was just happenstance. So I have literally have not spoken to any of those guys. So it didn't surprise me that I get, didn't get invited. I don't live in the area. I'm not involved in the NBA anymore. Right. Uh, and I ended up in the NBA or in the social media just because whatever, you know, I made jokes about it. Like, oh no, I didn't get invited or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, but I'm well aware that I was not in the inner circle of that team. And that doesn't bother me at least uh, because I knew that while I was on that team, especially after I got injured and I spent the last half of the season on the bench with, with a boot on my ankle, I right. was on the team. I wasn't even traveling with the team. They wouldn't let me travel with the team because I was rehabbing my ankles. So I missed a whole lot. And I, I wasn't a part of that inner circle because of the injury at the end of the year. And it was really cool to be in the locker room and spraying champagne on each other. That's the memories I have of that team and, and calming him down at times, Rajon. But, uh, you know, it, as I said, when we first started talking about the Celtics, that team was one and done because of the personalities involved. There's, you, you can't keep all of those. Those guys are all very strong personalities. You're yeah. not going to keep all them on, on the same team and happy for very long. And it proved to be the case. Yeah. And plus, I mean, your big three, they're all in their mid thirties. Like you knew it was going to be a small window and I couldn't agree more. The personalities definitely, um, as a Celtic fan, you could see that as very clear. Uh, but to get off the NBA really quick, um, I mean, I don't think there's anything more terrifying than a six foot 11 ax murderer. How did you end up in the role in the Axeman at Cutters Creek? I mean, how did that all form? Uh, well, towards the end of my career, I, I hired a Hollywood agent and then I was, as I was retired, um, I just thought, you know, it'd be fun to be in some movies. 
Uh, and so I, I, once in a while I get hit up for a small role and, you know, the problem with it is no matter who you are, Hollywood doesn't know who you are unless you're in Hollywood. Right. And I, I didn't live in LA and despite the fact that I'm Scott Pollard, NBA champion, retired NBA player for 11 years, you know, and, and all that, my agent was like, that, that doesn't matter to them. They can call up a six, six guy that lives in LA and he can come do this day role that they pay him 500 bucks to do. And they don't have to fly you out from in, from Kansas where I was living. They don't right. have to put you in a hotel and, you know, like you cost them a lot more money and, and for your name recognition, they're not, they don't care. And, and he told me that it was a hard truth to swallow because he was like basically telling me I'm a nobody <laughs> as far as Hollywood concerned. And I was like, okay. But anyway, I, I joined this thing. I think it was called Actors Access. I think it still exists, but I joined this website and put some pictures of me on there and a little background. And I got a couple of roles off of that. I did, uh, there was another one besides Axeman Cutter's Creek. Uh, it was another horror film and I played a monster and I murdered people or whatever. But um, <laughs> the Axeman was great. It was very cathartic for me because it actually, we filmed it all, to, all at the same time, all together in the same house. We filmed on location, slept on location, ate on location in the mountains of uh, Big Bear. And we, um, we filmed it right after my divorce. Like I literally signed the papers and flew out a couple weeks later to film this movie. So it was very cathartic for me to murder everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like every single role you have, you're just murdering people. It just, yeah. it's, uh, and you're very good at it, apparently. Yeah, so. Well, you know, I like, I like to murder people. So, no, but, uh, then, then back in Kansas, I became friends with uh, a movie maker who's actually an Oscar winner now. He wrote uh, the screenplay um, the uh, Black Klansman for Spike Lee. His name's Kevin Wilmot, and he's a director uh, and writer, and he's also a professor at the University of Kansas Liberal Arts uh, at the film school. And so we became friends, and I uh, helped him with a couple movies, and it was in a couple of his small movies. We made uh, Jayhawkers. I was the associate producer on that one, and then he's the one that actually wrote the screenplay for my movie, The Prophet, uh, which I mentioned earlier that, that we wrote about uh, loosely based on my career. But um, his, the associate, well, not the association, I'm sorry, Jay Hawkers. Oh, he wrote one uh, that was called, um, gosh, what's that called? Destination Planet Negro. And <laughs> it was based on, it was a, it's a satir, satirical movie, it's comedy, but it's basically uh, the, the brightest minds in the black community in the 30s got together and they were going to make a ship to go found a new planet because they're like, we can't go to Africa. That's not who we are. We're not gonna, we're not welcome here. So we're going to find a new place to go. And so they got together, made a spaceship and they flew. And instead of landing on another planet, they went in a wormhole in a time machine uh, and they came down to modern day America. And they thought they were on a different planet because of how things were. They saw people with the earbuds, you know, they make all kinds of jokes because they're like from the thirties. And it, I was a, I was in that one for a short amount of time too. Uh, and I think in that one, I just got my ass kicked because I was a coyote smuggling people across the border or whatever. And so they yeah. like broke out of the van and like beat me up and ran away. And I think one of them like acted like they were pissing on me or something. But <laughs> so I wasn't always the murderer is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Sometimes you get pissed off. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up. And, uh, you know, that brings me to the next thing I want to bring up. I can't let you escape without asking about Survivor. I mean, how the hell did you end up on Survivor? And, I mean, one of the first things, it looks like you're doing all the work getting 
everybody to the island on the raft. It looks like everyone's just chilling. You're the only one around the raft. Well, um, first of all, I was, I was actually asked to be on Survivor the first time right around, uh, it was 2010, when my first marriage was coming to a close. And so I knew I couldn't leave the country for almost seven weeks uh, because it just wouldn't have been good timing for me personally. So I said no at that point. And then they asked me again in uh, December of 2014. And I was on the plane, uh, I think we left March or May. Uh, but I had to go to casting twice. Uh, so the first time they reached out, it was for the first time they did Brains, Bronze, Beauty. And they just, so instead of me, they got Cliff Robinson. Uh, we, we keep mentioning people that have just passed away and what a sad ending to, to his short life. And, but a great man, Cliff was a, a great competitor, amazing basketball player. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, the survivor thing for me was, uh, again, kind of cathartic. It was just fun. I was like, hey, I'll try this, a little reality TV. And you sign a big contract that signs your life away that you can't talk about it until it airs. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was fun. And, you know, there's a whole lot of things that, that they film that they don't use. And some people got upset, you know, and I, I, I realize it now that some people didn't grasp that they were going to be edited. I mean, they, I think that people thought they were going to be shown who they are and how they are in real life. And it's like, well, if you don't make good TV the way you are in real life, they're going to edit you to become good TV. Right. And yeah. so when Jason and I saw each other from my season, we immediately knew in casting, we were like, well, we're going to be the bad guys. We're covered in tattoos. We're hairy. We look, you know, he looks like a pirate. I look like a caveman. So this is going to be a good partnership. And so we played it up. It was fun. And, and we did the things we did and said the things we said, but we're the only ones married with kids. And a lot of people like, were like, oh my gosh, you guys were bullies. It's like, uh, you know, you can't have it both ways. You either want equality and for us to treat everybody the same way, which is what Jason and I did. But we treated them the way they treated us. Like, oh, okay, you're going to act like this and call us names? All right, well, you're going to get it right back because we're all adults. It's fine. These aren't children. Um, but the editing is what uh, um, surprises some people. And um, it, it's a thing. And, and for every one episode is about three days of real life. That's what they, uh, so when you think about that, how many times you've been in a bad mood in the last three days or a good mood in the last three days? How many dumb things have you said in the last three days or smart things? So they have an incredible amount of footage to work with. Uh, and if you understand that going into reality TV, then it's no big deal. And it wasn't a surprise to me. I knew I was going to be a villain, uh, you know, and so, it, it was no big deal. I had a blast, and that's why I'll never be invited back. Because <laughs> I had fun. They, it's not a good story arc when you're just sitting there, like, chilling on the beach, like, this is awesome every day. And yeah. then they, they get me rolling my eyes. They're like, oh, he's bullying that girl. He say he called her Blondie. Oh, my God. He needs to go to hell. He's a misogynist. I'm like, this is fucking hilarious. Yeah. Because <laughs> the most – I mean, you're right. The camera always catches the worst of you, you know, in three days. But, I mean, for you, I mean, you, you seemed like you had a good time. It seemed like you are doing good things, you know, like pulling bugs out of chicks' ears, things like that. So, I mean, overall, I mean, I didn't think <laughs> they made you out to be too much of a villain. So <laughs> – well, I tried. You know, I, I guess I failed at being a villain there. Now, if they'd have let me have an axe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whole different story. <laughs> hey, um, am I correct? Did you do some stand-up comedy also? Yeah, you know, it, I, I did a, a, a charity event here uh, years ago. A friend of mine was like, hey, man, come up and do five minutes. We have some uh, actual professional comedians to close the show. But if you want to come up and do five minutes. So I did. And then another guy that performs locally, he's a professional, he asked me to be a part of his charity thing. 
And then I have some friends that are actual real professional stand-up comedians. They come to town and are like, hey, man, do you want to open for me? I'm like, sure. So I've, I've opened for Chris Porter, the guy. He's at a Netflix special. Uh, he's from Kansas, and, and we met each other after one of his shows, actually, uh, here in Indiana. Uh, I've opened for Dusty Slade. Um, and it's just something that just kind of organically arose out of a charity event where I just I, – I don't mind a microphone. I don't get shy and when I've got a microphone and an audience. And, uh, you know, some of the comedians I've, I've talked to, you know, I, I go, hey, man, give me some notes afterwards. And I'm like, well, your delivery, you know, and they, they start breaking it down. They're like, look, you need to pause here. You need to uh, enunciate this one. Give this joke its due. Let them, let them applaud. Let them laugh at that one because that's where you got, a, you got a good one there. And, and so reading the audience, I guess, is the bottom line. That, that Obviously, I would need a lot more time to work on that. But they all, to a person, all say, you know, the, the greatest thing that you have that every other person has to overcome is you don't give a shit. Yeah. If, if you bomb, you bomb. And I do. I, I, I'll go up there and I'll tell an awful joke. And it's just <laughs> dead silence. They're just yep. like, what the hell did he just say? <laughs> and I just, in my mind, I'm like, well, that one didn't work. Let's go to the next one. You know, and it just... <laughs> You know, Roy Williams can embarrass me, but a bunch of people in an audience can't embarrass me. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, because you, you bring up a great point. I'm friends with a bunch of comedians, too, and it's it's really an art form. And when, when people don't understand that, they just think, oh, this guy's funny or this girl's funny. But a lot of it has to do, like you said, like reading an audience, like you, you notice the good ones use a lot of hand gestures and stuff to, like, bring the joke home or, or they like I said, that pause that makes people – come to the joke more where they, they get it more, they laugh or you set up the joke for later on when you come back to the joke at the end of your set and doing something like five minutes, I mean, could seem like an eternity depending on how you do it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and it, there's so many things, and I'm just piggybacking the exact same point you just made it, it, about comedy and being good that are about discipline and understanding what you're delivering and how you're delivering it and when you deliver it. I mean, the timing is almost as important as the actual content itself. If it's a funny joke and you tell it the wrong time, it ain't going to hit. Yeah. But if it's the best joke, you save it for a different part of the skit where it fits better. And that's the part I don't have. I just have jokes. I tell stories. And if it's funny, it's funny to the audience. If not, I don't give a shit. I'm not a professional comedian. <laughs> <laughs> that's good, good point. That's a good way to look at it, though. Um, so you got kids you're saying you're coaching your kids. Is that correct, too, or no? Well, my uh, I, I coached one of my daughters in volleyball for one year, and then she made the, the high school team, uh, and then she's retired. Uh, but uh, then my next kid, he's 13 now. I was coaching him in rec league, just local, because, again, I don't believe in year-round specialization or that. Sure. So I coached him in the rec league, but then he made the, the elementary or middle school team. Sorry, I got too many kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he made the middle school team, so I'm not coaching him anymore. But I got a four-year-old uh, that he's doing soccer right now, but I'm not coaching his soccer team. But when he goes to basketball, my wife's probably going to talk me into coaching his basketball team. So Nice. Nice. You don't want to coach soccer, man. I got a I got a six year old, and it's like watching bees. But oh. <laughs> my, my four year old, he literally runs around like Captain Jack Sparrow. His <laughs> arms are up around his face. I'm like, dude, what is it with the hands? And he's just like, ah, like a muppet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I coach I coach I coach soccer and I coach football with my kid and uh, flag football and uh, dude, it was like herding cats. I mean, yeah. to get them to do anything. And, and, and then you have the one team 
We had this one team where, like, they, the coaches were nuts. These are like six-year-olds. They were making them do push-ups every time they gave up a touchdown. So, I mean, it was it was just insanity, you know. And I don't want them to lose the love of it because I never – I played all sports. I played year-round. And I never wanted my kid to feel pressure to do it. So I never mentioned sports to him, like, other than he'd be like, hey, Dad, I want to play soccer because they had some soccer thing kind of was preschool. And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, I wanted him to get into it or not get into it. You, I know – Quick question: You kids tall like you, or uh, or no? Uh, they're three are from my first marriage. Their girls are five seven and five ten, so okay. yeah, tall. Yeah. Uh, my thirteen year old from my first marriage, he's six feet tall, and he just turned thirteen, and he's two hundred pounds. Damn. He's a sizable human. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know when he's going to be done growing. The girls were done when they were thirteen ish. Yeah, but boy, uh, I'm pretty sure he's not going to have a period, so I don't think that's going to stop him from growing. Uh, but you know, at some point, uh, he'll stop growing. I grew until I was about 16, so I'm assuming he'll grow until then. But I, you never know until you're done growing. I mean, in my experience, in my family, I've got nephews that are seven one. Uh, I've got a niece that's six nine. Uh, and you just, you just never know. I mean, and I've got normal sized nieces and nephews too, and all my brothers are huge. So you just never know where the genetics are going to come into play. My four year old is tall and skinny, just like his mama. His mama's six feet tall. Yeah. Uh, so we, you just find out when you find out, but doctors, you know, we did that thing with the oldest two and the doctors were like, Oh yeah, the oldest is going to be six one and the next one's going to be six four. Well, five, seven and five, 10. Right. Right. Did you, uh, did you hit a big growth spurt at any time when you were growing up? No, nah, man, I was two feet tall. I had to duck to get out of my mom. So I big. Mean, <laughs> so I, I, I was like my, my whole life. I just, just grew three, four inches a year every right. year. I was always really tall, but just never really had that debilitating growth spurt. One of my brothers, the one that's 7'3", he grew 11 inches one year. Wow. Yeah, like he grew almost a fucking foot. I wow, that's insane. Yeah, because yeah, we were talking to – Zach, who were we talking to that grew like six inches in that one summer? Like everyone was that like Neil? Was that Lee Nalon or I think it's Lee Nalon. Yeah. Yeah, he grew. Yeah, he came back from a summer and he was six inches taller, and that made a huge difference in his basketball career. Um, before we get you out of here, Scott, we love doing this lightning round thing. Uh, Zach's gonna ask some questions. It's just a one, one or two word answer, and he'll hit you up with like six, six lightning round questions. Uh, you ready to start? Yeah, me with a one or two word answer. Good I was on. gonna say right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if you need. It's better than McIlvain. McIlvain gave us like 15-minute lightning round on each question. <laughs> yes. So if you need to expand a little bit, it's fine. We have no time limit on this. Uh, but the first question is, who's the coach that had the biggest impact on your career? Roy Williams. The one teammate who was the most fun to play with? Vlade Diva. The one guy who taught you how to be a true professional? Rick Mahorn. The one guy that you just couldn't figure out how to guard? Charles Barkley. The most amazing guy that you've seen in practice every single day. Ty, Jason Williams, Kevin Garnett. Okay. Uh, Axman, Cutter, Axman at Cutters Creek or Jayhawkers? Ooh. I mean, come on. That's like asking me to choose between my kids. Hey, I don't trust Rotten Tomatoes. So I got to ask you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Jayhawkers is a much better film, but – X-Man is just, it's just so awful, it's good. I mean, it's, it's a spoof of all horror movies, so. 
Hey, I, I love those. Everybody loves horror movies like that. It's a that. cheesy horror movie, and it's a spoof of cheesy horror movies. So, And it's got Scott Pollard as an Axeman, so it just makes right. it that better. Sure. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite basketball memory? Um, winning an NBA championship, man. Being on the court, having my – my uh, he's now 13. Uh, he was nine months old at the time. On the, on the court post-game – getting a trophy and, and have my little guy on the court with me at that point. He'll never remember that, but just that was a really special thing. Yeah, that's tough to beat. Um, and then the last one, what's the most valuable thing that you've learned from playing basketball you've taken into everyday life? Work ethic gets you farther than no work ethic. Hard work makes you lucky. I, I will never, ever believe anything other than being, being uh, lauded with awards because of your hard work. It just, they go hand in hand. And it, and it was absolutely true in my basketball career. It's absolutely true in my real estate career now. Yeah, okay. I believe that for sure. And uh, hey. I, I actually have one last one. I just thought of it. Out of all the awesome hairdos that you've done, which one was your favorite? <laughs> um, you know, I, I miss having long hair. Now when I grow my hair out, I just look like a founding father. So <laughs> I, just, I miss that. I'm, I'm balding now. And, and so I, I miss having long hair, but I, yeah, it's just, it's so thin up here. I just look like I need some bifocals <laughs> and be on the hundred dollar bill. <laughs> uh, anything you want to add or promote before we let you out of here? Um, no, I, this has been great. You guys let me talk too much. And, and so I appreciate it. I, I'm not much of a self promoter. I'm a real estate broker now and you guys aren't here in Indiana. So that doesn't help me out at all. <laughs> <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> Man, we, we, we have way too much fun today. Um, you definitely made it worth our while getting up at six thirty in the morning for the interview on West coast time. And you were so unbelievably generous with your time. We can't thank you enough for that. For sure. I appreciate you guys getting up early. I know the time difference is brutal. I remember when I was playing on the West Coast. I'm like, what? Why are? Why is everything going on before I'm awake? <laughs> <laughs> so true. I'm like waiting for everybody on the West Coast to wake up. So I appreciate you guys getting up early this morning. Uh, I know it's a pain in the butt to try to catch up to the East Coast. Hey, it's uh, it's it's never a pain to talk to somebody like you. You know, again, thanks again. Really enjoyed it. A lot of fun. And I mean, we'd love to have you back. I mean, you, you didn't talk enough. I mean, we could, we, we would have let you go for four hours if you would have let yeah, us. Yeah, we're so. fans of the NBA, man. So and any any these stories have been awesome. I mean, this is one of the reasons we love to do the podcast because we get to interview NBA players that we got to watch and and the stories have always been awesome. So we really appreciate your time for sure. Well, let me know when it hits. I'll put it out on my social media channels. We appreciate that very much. Very, very much. Scott, have a great, great week, man. Thanks a lot. Be safe. All right. Thanks. You guys too. And we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Wow. That was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you, call, you called it too. Like, you're like, he's going to be awesome. I remember, like I told him in the early in the interview, um, I remember you know, meeting him at that Kings game against the Sonics in the preseason. And he was like, just like we just talked to. I mean, he was yeah. super cool to all the fans. I mean, he was, uh, he was, ex he's exactly the same guy. And that was like, you know, probably 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a fan favorite for a reason. It's because oh, he's, he's a great teammate, but he's also so great to the fans. I mean, like, like you said, he mentioned in the interview how, he waited like an extra hour and a half, two hours to sign autographs. I mean, that's just who he was. And I mean, 
you heard stories about it all the time. I have a lot of people live in Sacramento and they're like, oh man, I met Scott Pollard. He's so cool. He waited to sign my autograph and you just heard nothing but great things. And that's just why you heard um, so many stories of him being fan favorites everywhere he went too. I mean, just yeah. a really great guy. And I mean, it showed today just being so gracious at this time. Yeah. And I always rooted for him. Like after he left Sacramento, I always rooted for him wherever he went to for sure. Um, and how could you miss him on the court with those hairdos too? Yeah, I, they were the best. I remember uh, because I was fairly young when I'd go watch him um, in Sacramento. I used to drive over the hill all the time. And just every game is a different hairdo. And I yeah. think they called him like Samurai Scott or something. is like some great nickname. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, and there's some guys that do it just for the attention, but that's that wasn't him. I mean, he like he really contributed to his teams. And, I mean, you could tell that – it was really just fun for him to be interactive with the fans. And uh, I think fans really appreciated it. Oh, man. And his sense of humor was hysterical. I mean, he had me laughing pretty much the whole interview with a lot of stuff he was saying. He was just, <laughs> I love I love what Lenny Wilkins called Matumbo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> D -D. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. If we ever, if we ever get the opportunity to have Matumbo on our show, which we have, I mean, that'll be like the crowning moment because of what the, what the podcast is called, man, I would, I, I have to ask him about Deke Deke. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What great yeah. stories though, man. We don't need to talk anymore because good Lord, he gave us so much great information and, and man, good stories too, right? I mean, Unbelievable stories. And um, he's just somebody that puts you in a good mood. Just talking to him. I mean, I, I think I was smiling the whole time. I was probably creeping him out a little bit. But I mean, he's just like, he's just so funny. He just puts you in a good mood. I mean, there's no better way to start off, start the day than hanging out with Scott. Uh, and, well, and like the thing too is like, he was so open and I really wanted to ask him, but I didn't know if he was on the team at the time. I can't remember when Olden Peace, uh, Olden Paulnies got in trouble for impersonating a police officer. Oh, that was earlier, I think. That was, was um, was it the King it was the Kings though, right? Yeah, I think that was like Tyus Edney Kings, Mitch okay. Richmond Kings. Yeah, because I wanted I wanted to I couldn't remember. I was gonna ask him, but I couldn't remember if he was on that that team with him. Because I think Paulney's played from ninety four to ninety eight on the Kings. So, yeah. so they might have overlapped just barely, but God, that would have been funny to hear him his side of the story of that. Because I mean, could you imagine that? Like, because I think he got because I think he pretty much got like terminated from the Kings right after that happened. Yeah. I, I know he played for some teams he, after that though. He did. So. Yeah, he totally did. But yeah, that's like, yeah, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, we got a lot more guests coming. This is, this is crazy busy podcast week. So um, yeah. make sure you subscribe because you don't want to miss all of the, the interviews that we will be doing. We have some great ex NBA players coming on in the next week or two so it's important to subscribe it helps us out it helps us out to review too um a lot more reviews we actually charted in taiwan too so as that to the, the places we charted it's insane it's like you know it's really really cool and i think i think Tom so, is the reason we ended up charting in taiwan Remember that would make Tom? sense because yeah now it's the united states canada japan and taiwan so four yeah. different countries have charted and three of those are top 25 if i'm not mistaken so i mean we appreciate all of the listeners all of the guests that are helping make that happen it really means a lot to us yeah it's amazing we don't even know how it's happening but you know like like scott said man we put the work in we work hard and we honestly just let these great players tell us tell their stories you know yeah, you just got to learn something every day i mean i 
every time we do one of these, I learn something new, and that's what's oh, so cool totally. about this. And we're not hot takers, you know. We're not looking to start trouble. We we're really just bringing you good content. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's it's nothing flashy. But you sit down, you know, you know, where you have your cup of coffee, or you go for your morning walk, throw the podcast in the in the ears, and like you said, you're going to learn something. I mean, I definitely learned some stuff too today for sure. Um, yeah. Very insightful. So, uh, like I said, subscribe, add us, review, whatever you need to do, wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate you so much. Um, anything you want to add, Zach, before we get out of here? Just want to say thanks again to Scott. Can't do it enough. I've thanked him like three times already, but uh, just guests like that are making this happen and making this podcast successful. We really appreciate it. And just much love to Scott Pollard because he's one of the guys I admired uh, during my playing days. And he was one of the guys that made me want to rebound and made me want to take a charge and made me want to, you know, help on defense. So watching him really inspired me, especially on the defensive and the hustle side. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and like I said, I always rooted for him when he played for Zach and wherever he went after that. So um, for Zach, I'm Eric. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll catch you next time.